text for our sermon this morning is Job 16, verse 21. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. This time we'll call the kids to the front for their children's sermon. I'm going to ask you a question. What's the difference between needing to be helped and needing to be saved? Needing to be helped means that you can, you can do most of whatever it is by yourself. Maybe you're moving something heavy and you, you just need someone to, to hold the edge for a second while you get the door. You can't do it alone, but almost. Needing to be saved means that there's nothing you can do for yourself. Imagine that you were drowning in the pool. Do you need help or do you need to be saved? A criminal sneaks up behind you and sticks his gun in your back. Do you need help or do you need to be saved? You need to be saved. In both cases, it's not that you can almost get out of the trouble and you just need someone to give you a, a hand, but rather, you are totally helpless. You can't do anything for yourself. If any of you have ever had surgery or gotten a cast because you broke your arm or your leg, you've never had the doctor ask you to help him. You can do nothing. Only he can do it. To say that you need help means that you can do most of the work yourself. You just need someone to give you a hand with what you can't finish alone. To say that you need to be saved means that you are unable to do anything. No one does surgery on themselves. They don't need help. They need to be saved. This is an important thing to remember because the Bible never talks about Jesus as being our helper or helping us. It always uses the word save. The Bible always calls Jesus our Savior. If someone helps you, you'll say, I did whatever it was, but Tyler helped. So you took the credit for what you did. If someone saves you, you will never say, he saved me and I helped. The verse that we just read tells us some important things about being saved. In this verse, Job is praying for someone to defend him to God, the way that you or I might defend each other to a friend. Job understands that he needs to be saved from his sins and that no ordinary man can do that. Job needs God to be his Savior, and that's what he's praying for in this verse. See, we forget how great and powerful and holy God is, that no ordinary person can just approach him. The only one who is holy enough to stand before God is God himself. And so Job is asking for God to be his Savior. Job is praying that God would speak for him and defend him to God. Job knows that only God can save him, and so he's asking God to save him. Now, our catechism lesson asked, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? And you know that that question explains to us the meaning of the name Jesus, the name Jesus means God saves. And of course, this teaches us that Jesus is God and that no one else but Jesus can save us. You see, our sin is not just a little problem that we can almost solve if we can get a little help. The Bible uses picture lessons like blindness and death because a blind person can't give himself sight. A dead person can't make himself alive. He doesn't need help. He needs to be saved. This is the wonderful news that the Bible teaches us. We have someone to save us. God saves us. Jesus' name means God saves. 
He is our Savior. He is strong. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is God. And that means He doesn't need help. Jesus doesn't need your help, nor the help of anyone else in heaven or earth. He is God, and God never needs help. Now think about how good that news is. The only one that's strong enough to save us from our sins is God, and that's who our Savior is. Jesus is God saves. I want you to pay careful attention to the rest of the sermon because we're going to learn more about these things. And after we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Let's start with the background of our text this morning. And remember that we understand things about this story that no one involved knew. Like we know that Job was righteous. God's own testimony was that he was a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and shunned evil. In the immediate context of our passage, Job is complaining that his friends don't believe his claim that he hasn't committed some terrible sin for which his suffering is punishment. Now, in some ways, of course, this reminds us of our Lord Jesus as He hung on the cross. In Psalm 22, Jesus says, All who see me ridicule me, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him, since He delights in Him. And in this way, we see Job as a foreshadowing of Christ. Job, if, if you were really innocent, none of this would be happening to you. But Job is only a foreshadowing. He's, he wasn't absolutely sinless. Sometimes Job crossed the line in his defense. Now, he wasn't wrong to defend himself. He just got carried away sometimes and claimed a little too much. And our text is actually one of those cases. But even here, even here, we learn something very important. Namely, that Job wants his case pled to God by God's equal. And we often fail to appreciate God's greatness and our insignificance by comparison. You know, the gulf between the dirtiest maggot and the greatest archangel, while big, is still finite. It's still measurable because they're both creatures. But the gulf between God and even the greatest archangel is immeasurable. It is an infinite gulf because God is the creator. The archangel, as great as he may be, isn't great in himself. He's not self-existent. He's a mere creature. And at that level, he doesn't differ from the maggot. Job wants this infinite gap to be bridged. He wants someone to represent him to God the way that a man might plead for his to his fellow man. And therefore, Job wants God himself to be his advocate. Which, of course, leads us directly to our catechism lesson today and our outline. Number one, Jesus alone saves. Number two, we reject all else. And number three, by faith, we have everything in Him. Jesus alone saves, our first point. Now, there's a very important question to ask. Where did Job get the notion of God being his advocate? And to answer that question, we're going to retrace some of our steps from earlier sermons. It's important to do because we must keep in mind what theology Job knew. Now, I trust you remember the first gospel promise. 
Genesis 3.15, which reads, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And I trust you also remember the ten-generation prophecy contained in the genealogy of the patriarchs from Adam to Noah. The patriarchs expressed their faith in this gospel promise by way of the names that they gave their sons. The names of the patriarchs from Adam to Noah are Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And those names are formed from Hebrew words which, when read in sequence, form the sentence, Man is appointed mortal sorrow. The great God shall come down preaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest. Job grew up with this gospel promise ringing in his ears. He knew that the appointed Savior was God Himself, for the great God shall come down. Job knew that the great God would come down and die in the place of guilty sinners, thus acting as their surety, their advocate. Job and his friends knew the most central doctrines of the gospel. I want to point out something very important about the viewpoint of the catechism. It's the viewpoint of true faith, and it's why we don't frame the question the way that modernists or atheists would. We don't ask, why is Jesus called the Son of God? No, we accept by true faith that He is the Son of God, and therefore we ask, why was He, the Son of God, given the name Jesus? The true faith isn't interested in a life of Jesus, a biography, if you will. If we strung together all that the four Gospels tell us about the life of Jesus, you'll find that we have insufficient data to construct what you would normally call a biography. If you read the Gospel narratives, you won't find out how tall Jesus was, what color his eyes were, what his voice sounded like, whether his hair was thick or stringy, whether his beard were full or scraggly. Even the accounts of his birth don't give us information that would help us deduce anything about his character. The Gospels tell us next to nothing of the first 30 years of his life. What influence his home life and schooling had upon his later life and character seems to be of no concern to the four evangelists. What the Scriptures are concerned with is rather the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hence, we are not concerned with what men called Him, but with what God revealed to us of Him. God called His name Jesus, and if God called His name Jesus, then there's significance in that name. Hence, there's a real sense to our question, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? God called His Son Jesus, and because God called Him this, Jesus is His name. When we, by grace, grasp His significance, we also call Him Jesus. And when we do so, that name Jesus becomes the only name given under heaven whereby we are saved. We then believe in that name, trust in that name, find our only comfort in life and death in that name, and have all our salvation in that name. Scripture, of course, you know, attributes great significance to names. The name Jesus is an English transliteration of the Greek form of the Hebrew name Jehoshua. And the name Jehoshua is formed from the words Jehovah and Yasha. Jehovah is God's proper name, and Yasha means to save or to deliver. Hence the name Jehoshua, or its variant Joshua, means Jehovah saves. Now we first encounter this name in the person of Moses' successor. 
And this is a highly significant fact. Because in a very real sense, Moses represented the law. Even in the New Testament, we find the question, what did Moses say? When in fact, what they're asking is, what does the law of God say? And since Moses was so closely linked with the law, he was not permitted to lead Israel into the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was a picture of heaven. And the significance of this fact is that no one gets into heaven by way of the law. The law doesn't save. And that's not a flaw. Because salvation wasn't its purpose. The law's purpose was to show us our sinful state and the hopelessness of attaining salvation by our own works. The law, therefore, drives us to Christ because He fulfilled the law for us. Moses didn't lead Israel into Canaan. God was teaching His people that the law doesn't get anyone into heaven. Instead, God chose Joshua. And His very name proclaims the gospel. The law can't get you into heaven. All it can do is condemn you. But fear not, for Jehovah saves. Moses couldn't give rest, but Joshua would lead the weary tribes into rest. He would destroy the Canaanites and take their inheritance. And thus, Joshua was a foreshadowing of Jesus. We meet another Joshua in the Old Testament, and he is equally significant as a foreshadowing of our great Joshua, Jesus, the Son of God. In Zechariah 3, we find Joshua, the high priest, and he is pictured as standing before God in filthy clothes. The people are unclean, and yet in their high priest, the people are justified in spite of Satan. And this is because Jesus would one day take upon himself the sins of all his people. He was the Joshua who stood before God in filthy garments, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. He paid the debt for their salvation. His name is Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. In Job's hope in God as his advocate, we find one of the most neglected gospel truths, one which is expressly stated in our catechism, namely that Jesus alone merited salvation and he himself applies it to his people. Salvation not only means to merit salvation, but to salvation, it also demands the application of that salvation to the heart of him for whom it is merited. And again, this is a truth that is greatly neglected and overlooked in our day. Providing satisfaction for sins and providing perfect righteousness are only part of the equation. That perfect saving work must also be applied to the heart. This, of course, is the great error of the Arminians who falsely teach that God wants all men to be saved and that Jesus died for all men. Although they may correctly emphasize that there is salvation in no one else, in practice they diverge so much that it seems while praising Him with their lips, they deny Him by their deeds. Our second point, we reject all else. Now, Job's confession of faith, if you will, was that the great God shall come down and by his death give rest to the despairing. And this means that Job understood that the seed of the woman would be a true man, and yet he would also be very God. For he would be the great God who would come down. The great God would, be, would come down, be born of a woman miraculously as the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. 
and therefore he would be God and man in one person. Now, there are some amazing hints of this in the original Hebrew of our text, things that we might not notice in a translation. The Hebrew uses two different words for man in this verse. Nevertheless, the idea is that man one and man two are peers. The first one is geber. Typically, it means a valiant man, like a warrior. The second is ben Adam, which literally means a son of Adam. So Job is trusting in a mighty warrior to save him, a son of Adam, to plead for him as his neighbor. Now, who else is that but Jesus? This is to whom Job looked in faith. This is who he trusted to be his advocate. Job truly believed what Jesus declared in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Lord's Day 11 emphasizes the fact that the very name Jesus implies that he is a complete Savior, a perfect Savior, in whom we find everything necessary to our salvation. We must not seek, nor can we find, salvation in any other. Those who seek salvation in anything else but Christ, whether it be their own good works or those of the saints, do not believe in Jesus. They do not believe in Jesus who believe in a combination of Jesus plus something else. It's impossible to believe in Jesus whose very name means Jehovah saves while also believing that you or someone else has to go Dutch with Jesus to pay your debt of sin. The Catechism is responding to one of the wickedest errors of Romanism, namely its doctrine of merit. Rome believes that no one is justified by faith alone. Both the Council of Trent and Vatican II anathematized anyone who says that justification is by faith alone apart from works, despite the fact that Scripture literally says that. Rome believes in a combination of faith plus works. And I'm going to state the doctrine of merit in very crass terms because A, it is a crass doctrine, and B, we need to see it for what it is. Rome believes that God will not withhold His grace from those who do all that lie within them. And that formulation goes back at least to the nominalists of the 13th century. The 13th century, not surprisingly, saw the birth of many of Rome's repetitious acts of worship, like the Stations of the Cross or the Rosary. And I say not surprisingly because when you tell men that God will not withhold His grace from them if they do all that lies within them, well, they're going to want something quantifiable. How much exactly is all that lies within me? You can never really know, can you? And so the expedient is repeatable acts of devotion. You know, maybe for me, a thousand rosaries is all that lies within me. And if I hit the magic number, then I can be saved. As if God is that easily duped, like he doesn't notice, realize that you're not doing a bunch of good deeds. You're just doing one thing over and over and over and over and over and over. And based on this doctrine of merit, Rome claims that many of the saints have surpassed, think of that, surpassed the requirements of God's law. Crassly put, it's like if you needed a thousand points to get into heaven, some have scored 1,500 or 2,000. And God has taken those extra points and put them into a treasury of merit from which poor bums like me can withdraw to boost our scores. Built into that system, of course, is the presupposition that anyone can more than fulfill God's law if he'll just put his nose to the grindstone. 
And therefore, the path of salvation by works is opened as a two-lane road. You can fill your deficit of merit from the treasury of the saints, or you can just muscle it out for yourself. Which, of course, demonstrates how Arminianism is really no different, in essence, from Romanism. There's really no appreciable difference in me applying to surplus merit of the saints or relying on my own good works. In both cases, my actions belie my creed. I say I believe Jehovah saves, yet indeed I feel the need to supplement Jehovah's work with either my own or that of other men. And truth be told, Rome goes farther than that. Rome's theologians don't blush to claim that since the physical material of Jesus' body derived from Mary, that it was really her blood that was shed for us on the cross. Romish theologian Leslie Rumble wrote, Mary is the second Eve as Christ is the second Adam. Her work was to be our co-redemptress and to mediate for us. She is our spiritual mother in heaven, and she fulfills the duty of a mother, winning for us by her intercession that grace of Christ, which is life to our souls and which will mean eternal life in the end. Now, if those statements make you want to take shelter from lightning strikes, I don't blame you. What does the Bible teach? The very name Jesus debunks the whole elaborate system of merit. Either Jesus is a complete Savior or He isn't. If He isn't, then He doesn't deserve the name Jesus because the name Jesus means He is the Savior. If He is a complete Savior, then we must wholeheartedly reject any notion of cooperation in salvation. I'm dumbfounded that some branches of Christendom have codified the doctrine that God needs a helping hand. He didn't need any help creating us, but somehow He's hamstrung when it comes to saving us. Do you remember when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind and lived in the woods as an animal for seven years? In Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 36, we read this. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can restrain His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. The hallmark of sanity is to believe in God's absolute sovereignty. God does not need help. In Psalm 50, verse 12, God sarcastically declares, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Jehovah does not need our help. Yeah, I know we're not Romanists, we're Reformed, so we don't cotton to these blasphemous ideas. But we are still tempted to this same sin, albeit in a more elusive and deceptive form. We don't believe that the saints in heaven help us, but we do often fall prey to the temptation that our own works must play a part in our salvation. So we may say that salvation is by grace, when what we actually mean is that salvation is attained by grace. But then we live as if although salvation is attained by grace, it must be maintained by works. And a lot of people live this way. They believe that God picked them up from a life of sin 
And now that they're Christians, the continuation of their Christian life is now in their own hands. A salvation that deals with past sins and leaves me entirely within my own power for perseverance in in the faith is no salvation at all. If you were a thousand miles from civilization, chest deep in quicksand, and someone came along and pulled you out, set you on solid ground, and then left you, your situation wouldn't have improved much, would it? If Christ atoned for our past sins, set us on the road to heaven, and then said, well, you're on your own from here, pal, He might as well have left us in our sins because every single one of us would end up in hell anyway. And now we come to our third point. By faith, we have everything in Him. And this is what I was getting at earlier. This is a very much a neglected doctrine in our day. Jesus both wrought our salvation and applies it to us. Saving us not only means working salvation, but it requires the application of that salvation to our hearts. And Jesus doesn't need our help here either. He is perfectly capable as Jehovah of saving his people. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And when you bring anything to Christ, you deprive him of that which is his greatest prerogative. Providing satisfaction for sin and providing perfect righteousness are only part of the equation. This entire perfect work of salvation must still be applied to those for whom it was wrought. If God doesn't apply to my heart the salvation that Christ wrought, I still don't have it. We repeat, this is the great error of the Arminians who teach that God wants all men to be saved, and that Jesus died for all men. Yeah, sure, they say that there's salvation in none other than Christ, but in practice, they diverge so much from their creed that while praising Him with their mouth, they deny Him with their deeds. Look, the whole punishment due to the sins of God's elect has been borne by Christ. For God to inflict punishment twice for the same sins, once upon the surety and then again upon the believer is contrary to the justice of God and insulting to the satisfaction of Christ. Either Christ has borne the whole punishment or only part of it. If he has borne the whole, then none can be laid upon the believer because there's none left. If Christ only paid part, well then his satisfaction isn't complete and every believer must be co-savior with Christ. Jesus is the Savior because as mediator, He both works salvation and applies it. What did the angel say to Joseph? You shall call His name Jehoshua, Jesus. Jehovah saves. Why? Because He will save His people from their sins. Not because He will make salvation available to them if they'll do all that lies within them, not because he shall induce them to save themselves. Jehovah saves and he doesn't need our help. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, sinners who are condemned before God, who live without him in the world, who neither can nor want to do anything but add sin to sin. Jesus is the Savior. He not only merits salvation, but he applies it. Why do we emphasize the law so much here at Freedom's Reformed Church? Why do we read the law every Lord's Day? Well, this is why. 
The most important thing for everyone is to become a sinner before God. He who does not know himself as a sinner does not know Jesus as a Savior. Becoming a sinner before God is something entirely different than merely realizing that we do wrong things. Even the heathen often recognize that. The true knowledge of our misery is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it's quite different. It stirs up the fear of God, but a loving fear that leads to God, and it causes one to confess his sins uprightly and with sorrow, because that sinner knows that he has to do with God, the inexorably holy God, and that's why sin is so dreadful. And if man's reason and conscience can see sin as desperately evil, what must it truly be in the light of God's glorious perfections? Isaiah cried, woe is me, for I am undone. And this is the cry of every awakened sinner. I am undone. Notice the Old Testament saints. Job, for instance. Wasn't this his experience? Job's very last words are, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. To the degree that you learn to know yourself as a sinner, to that degree Jesus becomes a more precious, more necessary, and more complete Savior. Your guilt is never too great. Your soul is never too black. Your backsliding and faithless turning away are never so great that He cannot find a ransom. Salvation is in Him and only in Him. He wrought it. And more importantly, He applies it. In Isaiah 63, verse 3, Jesus says, I have trodden the winepress alone. The whole world seeks satisfaction. We've lost God, and that loss in us begs for fulfillment. That's why stadiums are full Sunday after Sunday. That's why thousands are drawn to the theaters every day. That's why millions drown their empty souls in whatever filth they find on TV and the internet. Millions of lost souls seek for fulfillment, but not where it is to be found. Their souls are averse to Jesus and His Word, and still the whole world will leave them empty. Without God and without Christ, and therefore without hope for eternity. This is the judgment upon all that seek their salvation, not in Jesus, but elsewhere. Now, in closing, I want to draw your attention back to our responsive reading text, Isaiah 38. In this passage, King Hezekiah says, He cuts me off from the loom from day until night. You make an end of me. My eyes fail from looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. Hezekiah was afflicted as chastening for his own sin. The chastening came from God, and to God he turns as his advocate to undertake for him. We need saving from God's wrath, and to who do we turn? but to our all-sufficient Savior, Jesus, whose name means Jehovah saves. Let us pray. 